the words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 5, verses 31 to 35. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from men, but these things I say, that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light. And ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. We continue, in other words, our consideration of what our Lord here said to these Jews who were so troubled by the fact that he had healed a man on the Sabbath day and who felt that that was proof positive that he was someone who was sinning against God and breaking God's holy law and going contrary to God's will. Our Lord, you remember, has made positive statements to them about himself and then he turns to them as it were at this point and he says, but if I just make these positive statements like this, I know that you won't believe me because you say that my word must be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Very well, he says, I have my witnesses. And uh, he refers especially to the witness of God himself. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. So the question arises, how has God borne witness to him? And the first answer he gives is that God has borne witness to him in and through John the Baptist and the ministry and the teaching and preaching and testimony and witness of John the Baptist. Our Lord puts it in a very interesting way, you remember. He says, you sent unto John. You yourselves sent unto John. And uh, he bare witness unto the truth. And our Lord says that he's calling attention to this, this witness of John the Baptist to the truth, in order that they might be saved. Which we interpret as meaning this, that had they believed the witness of John the Baptist, they would have been saved. That is the astounding thing, that God gave the message to John the Baptist, gave him such enlightenment, that John uttered things which, if we but believe them, are sufficient to save us. And we all need to be saved, for we are all sinners. We have all broken God's law. We are all confronted by God. We need to be saved. We need to be saved from the guilt of sin, from the power and pollution of sin. We need to be saved from eternal punishment. Now our Lord says that John the Baptist made statements which if they had but believed them concerning him, they would save them. So we have been considering the witness and the evidence of John the Baptist. And what has he said? Well, here they are. He has said specifically that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. That is the most staggering thing that anyone can ever say. That is the most momentous fact, that the Son of God 
has been in this world. This is 1958, because 1958 years ago, this amazing thing happened. God sent forth his own son into the muddle and the confusion of men and of life in this world. God has sent his own son to solve the problem. John bore witness. He said, he is the Son of God. He has come down from heaven. And then you remember we saw that he said that our Lord is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. In other words, he explains how the Son of God saves us. He saves us by taking our sins upon himself and bearing their punishment in his own body on the cross. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Thank God he also said this, that he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He saves not merely by delivering us from our sins. He saves by giving us a second birth, by giving us new life, a new nature. He makes us partakers of the divine nature. And by the mighty power of his Holy Spirit, he purges our souls from sin, so that finally they shall be blameless and faultless, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We shall stand faultless in the presence of God. Those are some of the things that John the Baptist taught and said. But that isn't all he said. John said one other thing, and it is to that I want to refer this evening. Now we were looking last Sunday evening at the third chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, where you have the most extended account of the preaching of John the Baptist. And last Sunday evening we were concentrating on the 16th verse, where we read, John answered and said unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am unworthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And then he went on to say, Whose fan is in his hand, and he will truly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner. But the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Now that's a part of the testimony of John the Baptist. And our Lord says here that he was reminding these Jews of it in order that they might be saved. So we've got to take the testimony of John as a whole. We can't pick and choose. A man who picks and chooses in the scriptures is just being dishonest. We mustn't leave out anything because it's difficult. We must face it. We mustn't leave out anything because we may not like it. We must face it. We must take the whole scripture, the whole gospel, as it is. We must take the whole of the message of John the Baptist. And this was the final note, the final word in his message. And of course what it means is this. That John the Baptist taught quite plainly and clearly that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. 
Is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, the sin of the world? Is the one who baptizes with the Holy Ghost and with fire? Yes, and finally, is the one who shall judge the world in righteousness at the end of time, whose fan, he says, is in his hand, and he will truly purge his floor. Now, this is a reference to winnowing, winnowing the winnowing family. It was the ancient method of getting the uh, wheat germ out of its husk. We have machinery to do this in these days, but in those ancient times, they did it with what they called these winnowing fans, and they beat the wheat that had thus been harvested, and so they separated the wheat itself, the wheat germ from the husk by which it had been surrounded, what is, becomes the chaff. And so they separated the wheat and the chaff, put the wheat on one side, put the chaff on the other side, and eventually took it out and burned it, because it was useless. Now, John the Baptist takes up that very picture, and he says that our Lord is the one who is going to judge, and that will be the kind of judgment which will come to pass. There will be this great division, this separation into these two groups. Our Lord, let me remind you once more, makes it plain and clear to these people that he is reminding them of the things that John the Baptist said in order that they might be saved. And by reminding them of this, he displays his wondrous love and kindness and compassion. And God grant that as we look into this teaching, this matter this evening, we may realize that this teaching of the final judgment is a part of the gospel and that it is here before us and that we are to consider it in order that we might be saved. I do this with confidence because I know sufficient about the history of the church and the preaching of the church in centuries past to know that this message about the final judgment has often been used of God and by the Holy Spirit of God to bring men and women to a realization of the fact that they need to be saved and that they can be saved. What strange creatures we are. When we are presented with the free offer of salvation in the gospel, we often pay no attention to it at all. It is only sometimes when we are made to realize the precariousness and the danger of our position that we become awakened. We tend to be like that, don't we? In all the relationships of life, Doctors will tell you oftentimes that they have to frighten certain people literally in order to save their physical lives. They may have put the truth quietly and mildly to them and have just warned them very gently. The patient pays no attention at all. It is at times only when the patient is made to realize in perhaps what is a somewhat blunt manner that unless he pulls up and stops and takes a rest, or submits to treatment, or undergoes an operation, 
that if he doesn't do it, he'll lose his life. It's only when it comes to that that the men will listen. Such creatures we are. When we are offered this salvation, I say, and are told about the love of God, it doesn't touch us. But then, I say, when we realize the danger, we begin to awaken to the situation and begin to pay attention. Well, thank God, I say, this is a part of the gospel. Therefore, these things I say unto you that he may be saved. And as I was saying, this has often been used by the Holy Spirit. God grant that it may be this evening. I'm very conscious of the fact, as I stand in this pulpit this evening, that exactly 200 years to yesterday, there died one of the greatest men that America's ever produced and ever known. His name was Jonathan Edwards. A brilliant, mighty intellect. Perhaps the greatest philosopher that America has ever known. This isn't my opinion. It's the opinion of writers who are not Christian. I first came across the name of Jonathan Edwards in a book written by a man who certainly wasn't a Christian. He was writing about philosophy and philosophers. And suddenly I came across the name of this man I'd never heard of. A preacher 200 years ago in New England. I say beyond any question, the greatest philosopher that America has ever produced. Some would say that he is literally the greatest and the biggest man that America has ever produced. A genius, surpassing genius. Well, Jonathan Edwards died on March the 22nd, 1758, exactly 200 years to yesterday. And I'm reminded of him for this reason, that the theme that we are looking at this evening was a theme on which he often preached. There are many people who know nothing about Jonathan Edwards except this, that he once preached a sermon to which he gave the title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that's about all they know about him. He certainly did preach such a sermon. And he preached many similar sermons. And they were used of God in that great revival that broke out in Northampton, in New England, 200 years ago. And he himself points out often in his sermons that God makes use of this kind of message. And he often pleaded with the people to flee from the wrath to come. Very well, let us do the same thing in our day and generation 200 years later. And oh, that God would grant such a visitation to us here and to the church of God in Great Britain today as he granted 200 years ago. Read about Jonathan Edwards, my friends. It'll do good to your souls and it'll bring you face to face with the most glorious truth. Well now then as I introduce this subject to you. I must express my increasing amazement at the fact that this doctrine is so neglected. Isn't it amazing that people don't consider it and look at it? And especially I feel at the present time. Now look at our newspapers. They're full of articles and letters about the danger of the hydrogen bomb. Meetings are held to protest against it, to say what a terrible thing it is, and so on. Now, people are very concerned about that. But they're not at all concerned about this. How often do they meet together to consider the final judgment and their eternal destiny? They don't do that. They don't hold public meetings about that. 
But they do about these other things. Now, why is this? Well, it seems to me there's only one answer. It is because they don't really believe in a future life. They believe in this life and in this life only. It's because they're spiritually blind. They don't know that this is the life of illusions and that that is the real life. To them, life in this world is everything. And when you've lost this, you've lost all. And that's the end. So they're tremendously concerned about life in this world. What can we do to prevent our being killed and going out of this world? Well, of course, nobody wants to be killed. Every sane man must regard war as lunacy. But I'll tell you something else which is lunacy. And that is only to be considering this life and this world. And our going out of this only and nothing further. Because you see at best this is a short life. It's a transitory life. It's a life that's bound to end in some shape or form. Whether you ban all your bums or not, you've still got to die very well. But the other is endless. It's eternal, it's unavoidable, and it's changeless. And yet they don't think about that at all. Isn't that the real tragedy of the age in which we live? That men give so much attention to the temporal and none to the eternal. They give such attention to the passing. They give no attention at all to that which is absolute and will never pass away at all. Oh, I was going to say that it's very difficult to understand this, but it isn't, you know. The Bible tells us that the explanation is quite simple. And that is that we are so dominated, the human race is so dominated by the devil. And his business is to blind us against these things. So he makes us so interested in the one that we entirely ignore the other. I therefore am just arguing like this. If you are really concerned about the hydrogen bomb and these other bombs... And if you're really roused about this matter, because they're going to lead to the end of life, I say, just be logical and go on. And say to yourself, well, of course, if the summit conference agrees to ban them all and another hydrogen bomb is never built, still we are left with the fact of death. And still we are left with the eternity that's beyond it. Be logical. Follow your own reasoning. Go on with your same argument. Face what is absolutely certain, as well as that which is merely continual. But come, let me ask another question. Let me put another point to you. Why is it that people so object to doing this? Now, nobody would object, you see, to a public meeting to consider the danger confronting us of losing our lives by the use of these bombs. But if you once call a meeting or address a meeting like this, on, on this fact of uh, judgment and of eternal destiny, people at once object to it. Now why is that? Why should this be objection? Why should people really hate it? The answers they give are these. That... Um, Oh, well, we, we've grown out of that sort of thing. The people used to be afraid, but not now. Modern times, modern knowledge, modern development, and especially, of course, uh, their idea of the love of God. This is just dismissed. It's dismissed altogether. 
The argument is quite simple. We are told that if you believe in God at all, and if you believe he's a God of love, well then, of course, this kind of thing simply cannot happen, and there's no more to be said. Now, wait a minute. I want to try to show you this evening that there's a great deal to be said. Listen to some of the things. Let me dismiss this modern outlook idea. There is nothing in the modern outlook which makes any difference to this question at all. There is nothing that we know today that they didn't know who listened to Jonathan Edwards 200 years ago. There is nothing that we know today that in any way affects this subject over and above what the people did who lived in the time of Christ here on earth or even before that. Nothing at all. We have no new knowledge that makes the slightest difference in any respect. If you have any, I should be very grateful if you'd let me know at once what it is. The fact is there isn't. None at all. All our knowledge about science and so on makes no difference at all here. Science knows nothing about personality. It knows nothing about God. It knows nothing about men's eternal destiny. Nothing whatsoever. Oh, I know that scientists have got their prejudices like everybody else, but that isn't knowledge. That's just what they think. That doesn't prove anything. Very well then, I leave that at that. God is still the same. Any changes in the world do not affect him to the slightest extent. But come, let me, if I may use the words of our Lord, as I am concerned about this question of salvation, let me put some considerations to you. I even doubt myself whether I should do this. And yet I do it trusting that it may be of some help to someone. Can't you see that there are certain general arguments that point to this inevitable judgment? Is it not obvious to us all that there is a moral principle at work in life? What I mean is this. There are certain laws which if you break them will lead to suffering. You neglect your health and you'll suffer for it. Now I say that's a moral principle. Put your finger in the fire and you'll be burned. Doesn't matter what your views are. You may be the greatest philosopher in the world, but if you put your finger into the fire, you'll be burned. There is a moral principle that runs through life. Not only that. Isn't it perfectly clear from human history and from personal experience that sin always leads to suffering? The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard, and it is. It always has been. It always will be. Read of men in the Old Testament who sinned and they suffered for it. You'll find the same in the New. Read your biographies. It's always the same. There is a moral principle in life. Do what you will, you can't get away from it. You have to pay for all you get. There is always the morning after the night before. And with all the brilliance of science, it cannot be abolished. There is a moral principle which says that there is a hangover. Do what you like with it. Say what you like. You can't avoid it. You can't evade it. We are living, after all, in a moral universe. 
Though the devil has come in and has marred it, the principle is there as a foundational thing, as a foundational fact in life itself. And it suggests that it's something eternal and absolute. Oh, let's look at it like this. Every one of us has got a sense of responsibility. We're all aware of it, whether we like it or not. We may believe in evolution and say that we have just emerged as animals from the jungle. All right, but we still are aware of a sense of moral responsibility. We are taking decisions always. We have this sense of right and of wrong, and we know what it is to feel moral indignation. When we hear of some foul fiend doing some terrible thing to a child or something, we say that ought to be stopped and punished. What made you say a thing like that? Ah, that's your moral judgment coming into operation. You see, not only is there this intrinsic moral principle at work in life, we've all got it within us. There are certain things we say it ought to be stopped. We protest against it. We say it ought to be punished. Now, that, I say, is again just an indication of this fact that this is a moral universe. And that right and wrong and good and evil are absolutes, which we are aware of. Well, the Apostle Paul, you remember, in writing to the Romans in the second chapter, he puts that in his own perfect way as he says, the meantime, excusing or accusing one another. We're always doing that, excusing ourselves, but accusing others of the very thing which we excuse in ourselves. It's a proof of our moral judgment. Not only that, consider this. The whole idea of a future life surely demands a judgment. Is it conceivable that what we do in this life doesn't matter at all? Can you envisage such a possibility? That men and women who've walked the narrow way should finally end up with the people who've gone with a crowd along the broad way. Is there a value in moral striving and moral effort? Do all end in the same place? Can you conceive of that? Does your sense of right and wrong and of justice allow such a conception? The thing is unthinkable. So I say that if you believe in another life at all, you must believe that there there is a division that what we do in this life must be judged and that it leads to an end. Of course, I know many would like to think that when they come to die, it's like one of these flowers dying or putting off a switch. But can you conceive of yourself as not existing? Can you imagine yourself as non-existent? Is this life all and everything? Do we spend our time in this world as we do, all to no purpose? I say the thing is impossible. There is that within us which protests against it. We have a feeling that we are going on, though we don't like it. We know it's there. And if we do, well, I say... What we've done in this world must make a difference. It must count. That's just another way of saying that there is a final judgment. But you see, at the back of it all and above all, there is God himself. And because God is God, God is just. And God is righteous. God is the moral governor of the universe. He is the promulgator of the eternal law of righteousness. And if the best men that the world knows today and has always known have been the men who've had a sense of moral indignation, 
have been the men who protested against wrong and iniquity and suffering, if that is true of the best men the world has ever known, multiplied by infinity, and you're looking into the face of God. God is just and righteous and holy and true and good. And it is inconceivable, I say, that God should be indifferent to men and his action. He's made man in his own image. He's given him free will at the beginning. He's given him moral responsibility. Can he turn to him at the end and say, it doesn't matter. Do what you like and you've done what you like. You're all the same to me. It's impossible. I say it with reverence. Where that true God would not be God. Well, there are some general arguments. I say I hesitated to put them before you because I have a feeling that what I really should be saying is what I'm now going to say, which is this. A future judgment and Jesus Christ himself as the judge. Why do I preach that? Well, here's my reason. The Bible teaches it everywhere. You see, in the last analysis, the argument is this. It's an argument between your opinion and what the Bible says. That's what it comes to. It's not a philosophical argument in the last analysis. This whole argument about a final judgment by the Lord Jesus Christ, it really just comes down to that. Because the Bible states this everywhere. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the New you can't evade it. You can't escape it. I read you some instances of it at the beginning. I could have read many others. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus Christ preached it. The Apostle Peter preached it. The Apostle Paul preached it. It's in the epistles. It's in the book of Revelation. It's everywhere. So you see, it comes down to this. What is my final sanction? What is my final authority? The whole problem is the problem of authority. And I say in the end, there are only two final authorities, and here they are. This book, well, or what I think. Of course, I may quote men who write to the newspapers and say, why I'm not a Christian. Yes, well, I'm only quoting men. In other words, you see, it's this or man. If you believe that the Bible is the word of God, if this is your only authority about your soul and about God and about life and death and eternity, well, if you say that, well, then I say you must believe in a final judgment by Jesus Christ, for the book is full of it. So if you don't believe in it, you're not arguing with me. You are arguing with revelation. And you are saying, ah, oh, I'm going to risk my whole eternity on what I think. Very well, my friend, all I'm concerned to do is to make it perfectly plain to you that that is what you are doing. You are putting your opinion, as supported by other men and women like yourself, who've never been in any world but this, and who don't know what happens at death and beyond it, you are putting your whole case on such opinions, and you are saying that you know better than the Bible. Very well. As long as you are clear that that is what you are doing, my responsibility is ended. But come, over and above that I have this to say. Jesus Christ himself taught this. 
And that is the complete and the final answer to this talk about the love of God. I can't see, says the modern man, how a God of love can possibly do that. Answer this question. How could Jesus Christ see that? He taught that. Read the 16th chapter of Luke's Gospel. And there you'll see it again. I read to you that end of the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't it plain? Narrow, broad, house on rock, house on sand. It's all judgment. And it's running through his message everywhere. Here is the very Son of God himself who knows God as nobody else ever has or ever can know him because he's come out of his bosom, because he's one with God, because his own nature is love as God's nature is love. Here is one who really knows the love of God and yet he teaches that he himself is going to judge the world at the end and that there will be this separation between the house on the rock and the house that collapses on the sand. Can't you see that it is the height of folly to pit your imaginary notion of the love of God against this authoritative declaration about the love of God by the Son of God himself? And then finally, I must say this. The final argument, it seems to me, against this objection to the last judgment is this. That this doctrine only comes in after the other doctrines. Listen to John the Baptist. Listen to his testimony. This is what he says. Look at him, he says. Jesus of Nazareth. He says, there is the Son of God. Here is one who has come from above. And the one who is from above is above all. He's come from heaven, says John. He is the Son of God. Listen to him. That's the first thing. But then he went on to say, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. The Son of God has come into this world, says John, to save us from punishment and from hell. Behold him, look at him. Stand in amazement as you behold the spectacle. The Lamb of God is the Son of God. Unthinkable, but it's happened, says John. There he is. That's the thing that comes next, you see. That we can be saved. That he so loved us that he took our sins upon himself and bore their cruel punishment and the shame and the indignity of it all and died on the cross and was buried in a grave. He did all that, that you and I might be delivered, might be saved. He offers us new life and this power of the Spirit. All that comes first. If there were none of that and nothing but a message about judgment, well, there is a sense in which I could understand the objection. But you see, the message, of the, the, the message about judgment only comes in after that. Listen to John the Baptist, I beseech you. 
I indeed baptize you with water, but there cometh one mightier than I, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Or believe in him, says John. Hear what he's saying, because his fan is in his hand also. And he will truly purge his flaws. He will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. You know, if I couldn't preach the gospel first, this message of mine tonight would be a terrible, I would go further, it would be a horrible message. But thank God I only say it after I've reminded you about the gospel. So that we are left without any excuse at all. There is no need for us to suffer what we so richly deserve if we believe this first message. So we are left without any argument. God has provided the way and it is only if we haven't availed ourselves of it that we are exposed to this terrible fate. Well, let me as I close put it to you like this simply. You notice what John the Baptist says about the thoroughness of the judgment? He will truly purge his flaw. Yes, every grain of wheat will be separated from every covering of chaff. None will slip through the net, as it were. It's a thorough process. You read again that third chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. And you'll find that John everywhere has been emphasizing this. He says now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. It's not just a question of trimming or clipping a little bit of the branches or a few leaves here and there. He's, it's a radical, it's a thorough work. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. You can't slip through this. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Nothing is hid from his sight. Yes, says the book of Revelation, the books will be open. And in those books there is a record of sins committed by you and by me that we have long since forgotten. But they're recorded. Well, this isn't my theory. The books will be open. We are dealing with God who is omniscient, who knows everything. We can get away with things as we say in this life, can't we? We can slip through the most closely woven net that is laid for us. We get away with things. But we do read, don't we, that men who've got away with a lot are generally caught in the end. But here is a place where none can escape and none can evade anything. The books. And all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do.
He knows all. He knows everything. And you notice it's going to be a final separation. Wheat, chaff. And did you notice the other term? He will burn with fire unquenchable. Everlasting. No end to it. Now then, my dear friend, let me ask my final question, which is so important. What is it then that determines our fate? And you notice the teaching. It isn't our heredity. It's no use your saying to me, said John the Baptist to his congregation, we be Abraham's seed. For I tell you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now let's be clear about this. We are not saved. We do not go to heaven because we happen to be born in Great Britain. That's a pure figment. There is no such thing as a Christian country or a non-Christian country. So that our heredity doesn't save us. The fact that our parents or grandparents were great saints doesn't make the slightest difference at all. Doing good, being religious doesn't help the people who came to John. Where the Pharisees, they were highly religious and they fasted twice in the week and gave a tenth of their goods to the poor. And John looked at them and said, You generation of vipers! Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What is it then that makes the difference? What is it that saves? You notice he answers in his own picture. What saves a man is his nature. The wheat he will gather into his garner. The chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Wheat and chaff are essentially different in their natures. That's the thing he says that's going to save at the end. That you're wheat and not chaff. Or did you notice how he'd put it earlier again? The axe is laid, he says, to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Did you notice how our Lord said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount? The tree, he said, is either good or bad. You don't get grapes of thorns or figs of thistles. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. It's the nature that matters. Fruit may look all right, but is the tree good? It's the nature that counts. It's the foundation of the house, and not the mere number of windows or roof or paint or anything like that. It's the foundation, and that's the nature. And you know, my friends, that's the only thing that will matter at the day of judgment when the whole world, small and great, will stand before Christ. One thing only will matter, and it's this. Have we got the new nature? Do we belong to Christ? Have we received from him life anew, life divine? For obviously nothing can dwell with God and enjoy God except that which is like God. How can a man who spent his time drinking, gambling, blaspheming enjoy heaven? The thing's impossible. It would be hell to him. You must have a corresponding nature if you're to enjoy it. There are people to whom music is a pain. Why? Well, they lack the faculty. They're not able to enjoy it. And no man can enjoy God and enjoy heaven to all eternity except a man who has a nature corresponding to God's nature. It's the wheat and the chaff. It's the good fruit or the evil fruit. 
That's the thing that matters. And that being interpreted, I say, means just this. That we either have the new life and the new nature which Christ has come to give us, or else we haven't got it. That's what he said to Nicodemus, wasn't it? He said, stop asking your questions. There's only one thing that matters. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You need to be reborn. Very well then, here's the thing that's going to decide our eternal destiny, this everlasting destiny. Have we this nature, this divine nature within us? Or do we lack it? It's the only thing that matters according to John the Baptist. And according to the Lord Jesus Christ. Very well then, let us answer this question. You remember the people turned to John and said, What shall we do then? And oh, that any who are uncertain about themselves in this congregation may ask that question here and now. What shall I do then? For John answered the question. He said, Repent. Repent. Realize that hitherto you've been trusting to your own theories and ideas, modern knowledge and all the rest of it, and you've ignored what God has said and you've not realized the nature of God and you've criticized God and you've broken his laws and you haven't realized it. Oh, realize it now and go to God and say, I've been a fool, I've been blind, I've been dull. Get down on your knees and confess it. That's repentance. Do it thoroughly. See how wrong it all is and the life that corresponds to it. Repent, says John, and do a thorough work. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. And then, having done that, believe the testimony that God himself has given to his own son, Jesus of Nazareth, through John the Baptist. Believe that he indeed is the Son of God and that he came into this world to save you from that sin you've now come to see. Believe that he bore its punishment on that cross on Calvary's hill that as a Lamb of God he's carried it away and that God offers you here and now in this service a free and a complete and an entire pardon without you doing anything just believing that Christ died for you and your sin. Believe it. And believe that he'll give you this new nature, this new birth, this new life, and put his spirit into you, which will purify you and burn away the dross and eventually land you complete and perfect and entire in his holy presence. Believe that. And you will find that you've got the new nature. It's a miracle. Don't try to understand it. Just believe his word. That if you repent and turn to him. And cast yourself upon him. And his love and mercy and compassion. He will indeed. Give you the new life. Create within you. A new nature. So that you will have nothing to fear in the judgment. You will be weak. And he'll gather you into his garner. And he will say unto you, Come, you blessed of the Lord. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you.
from the foundation of the world. It's the nature that matters. He gives to all who ask him for it. Ask him. And you can receive it here and now. The wheat he will gather into his garden. The chaff he will burn with fire and the 